friends, welcome back to the show. Today is my honor to be joined from the south side of Chicago by Dr. Otis Moss III. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. It's a delight to be here with you. I want you to know that I have a friend of mine who is a big fan of yours, and honestly, I got most introduced to you and your work from a mutual friend of ours from down in Australia, down in Perth, and I assume you're probably going to guess who I'm talking about very quickly. Absolutely. My man, Jared, without a doubt, and the entire McKenna tribe. Yes. He is a big fan of yours, and I've known Jared for years, and so I've seen him interact with you on social enough that I've, oh, okay, I know this guy, I, because he's, he's Jared's friend. So uh, you, you come with a great deal of uh, respect because Jared speaks very highly of you. Well, we love Jared and have great respect for, for Jared. And, and we love Cat. We are, we are big fans of Cat. I tease him all the time. I said, mm-hmm. you know, Cat, Cat is the boss. And, of course, uh, the children. And we just yeah. appreciate, appreciate mm-hmm. his work. Yeah, no, he's he's a good friend, and uh, I've learned a lot from him, and including getting to know your work. So I appreciate uh, how he's subtly introduced me to your work, and I'm excited to talk to you. One of the things that he said is uh, he goes Jono, which you know, I guess Australian people they call people Jonathan Jono. I don't know whatever he goes. Yeah, I always tell Jono that uh, it's like the white church doesn't know the black church. They need to be introduced to the black church, and. You have a line in the book about, uh, at the end of the book, where you talk about how uh, back when Obama was running for office and your church came into the center of uh, some of the news stories, um, you know, they were complicated stories, the way that people were describing your church. And then so in the book, you mention it's like the white church doesn't know the black church. And I'm like, well, um, you know, I'm from the Churches of Christ, which is similar name, but different tradition than the tradition you're part of. And so I know the, the black churches of Christ from, from my tra- tradition, but there's a lot that, that we, we kind of don't know. What do you think is one of the first things that as the white, as white Christians, as the white church is trying to figure out how do we understand our brothers and sisters more from the black church that we're missing? Like, what do you think some of the first steps could be to rectifying mm-hmm. that um, lack of awareness for our brothers and sisters in Christ? That, that's a great question. I think one of the things that must happen, I think the first thing, uh, is to realize that the black church is not a white church in blackface. That there is an entire tradition, theology, Mm -hmm. culture, ritual, and practice that is not just rooted in the Americas, uh, but goes back even farther, uh, whether you want to talk about the Ethiopian tradition, the biblical tradition, but the first 20-odd Africans who arrived in, in America, uh, many of them coming from the Congo, uh, had been practicing the faith for over 100 years, that you even had uh, the Pope uh, sending a letter to the colonies saying, could you please release these people? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this major tradition that has been hidden for quite some time, uh, people are unaware of, and just assume that, oh, Black church, you all have different music, but it's all the same. Um, but there's there's hmm. truly a, a theological tradition within the within the black community. Yeah, yeah that that's a really powerful line that it's not just white uh, church and black face. When when someone unintentionally or unwittingly does make that assumption, obviously just thinking, well, the music is different, and th- <laughs> and that's the only difference. If they're trying to understand, what do you mean by like a, uh, a rich theological tradition that we can learn from? What do you think they could do to kind of 
glean more from that? Well, one, I mean, there's there's some amazing works to read. Uh, one would be Howard Thurman, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, to understand this different perspective of how we we view we view Jesus. The uh, what is known as the uh, the invisible institution that before there were the formalized churches, there was what was known as the invisible institution where people were meeting. Tony Morrison does a really good job in the book Beloved of demonstrating that here you go, you have a group of black people who come to these clearings and it is mm-hmm. the place to exchange ideas and do education to prepare to run north, to sing songs, to offer prayers, to interpret scripture and pass on a spiritual and theological tradition that is completely counter uh, to to the enslaver tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Howard Thurman is someone that uh, your book is going to talk quite a bit about. And one of the things that I learned in your book, uh, the book is entitled Dancing in the Darkness, which is a title which I can't wait to get to the story that we get the title from for this book. Um, but uh, Howard Thurman's book that you just referenced, isn't that one of the three books that Dr. King would have carried with him? Correct. Right? Yeah, legend had it that Dr. King carried the Bible, the Constitution, and a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited with him everywhere he went. And so the the background for my listeners who don't know Howard Thurman is he was Dr. King's uh, a teacher and a minister to Dr. King. And obviously uh, Thurman grew up – did I say that correctly? Well, he was a spiritual teacher. He was a spiritual teacher of yes. Dr. King. He graduated – from Morehouse College, where Dr. King graduated, obviously, before him. But he was this incredibly influential minister within the African-American community. Many people have never heard of him, but he was a a mystic. He was framing the idea of nonviolence. He had been traveling to, to, to India and meeting with uh, Gandhi. Uh, he was uh, this amazing professor and teacher, and he used the arts. This is the other interesting thing. He believed that hmm. you could communicate uh, the depth of of God's care and grace and mercy and power by allowing artists to express in worship. So dance, painting, you hmm. you name it. That was what was a part of of his presentation. And he, he started out in 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 the chaplaincy. At, at he was at Boston. He was at uh, Spelman College. He was at Morehouse College. But then he started a ministry out out west. Uh, but people followed him wherever wherever he went, and he would do these seminars that uh, mm-hmm. many of the uh, brain trust of the freedom movement were either a part of or had been reading sections of the books that he wrote in order to get inspiration to understand how they are to wade through these strange waters. Hmm. But his story uh, begins at a uh, what could have easily been the end of it at a, uh, a train station, bus station, where he's a young kid. Uh, as I'm trying to remember the story, he was uh, in Florida where he lived. Uh, there was no seventh grade or eighth grade so that uh, black students couldn't go to high school. He's got someone who helped him out, did some tutoring. So he was able to like test in. He was about to go off and he had to travel to where he would get his education uh, there's some weird loophole where he has this 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 trunk that is carrying basically like his suitcase, but it doesn't have a handle, and so he wraps a rope around it. But then you can't get on the the vehicle if you don't have a handle. But he's using rope, and so this guy's like what I imagine to be the, the white guy working there says, "Well, you can't get on because you don't have the handle," and and so he's stuck. But out of nowhere, 
uh, a gentleman appears, pays for him to go, and the rest is history. And out of nowhere, this guy shows up and does something. And it, it's a beautiful story about how a seemingly unidentified person changes the landscape of so many people's lives. I mean, if you think Dr. King was deeply influenced by this guy, this guy, Howard Thurman, doesn't happen if it wasn't for the guy on That's right. like this act of generosity. That, that It's such a beautiful story. Oh, thank thank you. It, it's really a wonderful story, and his his biography or our autobiography with Head and Heart uh, goes mm. into it in even more detail. But for your listeners, in he was raised in and around Daytona Beach, Florida. He was born in 1899, okay. and the way that Jim Crow worked, you could only go to school up to about the seventh grade. There were only three high schools for for black children in the state of florida so to get an idea only three and people know how large florida is and there was a private school it's huge that his parents gathered money in order for him to attend because the superintendent not the superintendent the principal said i want this young man to test into this school and the superintendent mm-hmm. was you know kind of like i don't know about this having a you know a black student try to test into this to this program and he tested in did well and uh, they gathered the money so that he could go to school uh, but when he gets to the train station just has a few dollars the ticket master or the the person giving out the tickets to get on the train uh, decides looking at this young man that uh, uh, he was going to follow the letter of the law that said you need a handle on your on your trunk and he was obviously poor and he didn't have a handle. He had a rope around it. And really, this, young, this gentleman was trying to discourage this young man from going to school. That's, what, that's how Jim Crow functioned. It would, it would, you'd run into these types of obstacles all the time. And this was a common story. But a gentleman in overalls, he turns around and there's this man who appears and takes care of everything and, and, tell, and encourages him. If he had never gotten on that train, never gone to school, he would have never gone to Morehouse College. He would have never graduated. He would have never written Jesus and the Disinherited. He would not be a teacher of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He would not have helped so many people get a frame in what we know as the freedom movement. So literally, the entire freedom movement hung in the balance because of one act, as you said, of generosity changed the landscape of the South because he encouraged yeah. this one young man. Wow. And it, and it's a beautiful story. South, the world is, I, I think, different because, uh, as I hear you telling the story, like the world is different because of one act of generosity, but it's not just the world in, like, in general, but your parents were actually married by Dr. King. He was the officiant at the, their wedding, is that correct? That's correct. And yeah. so your, your, dad, your dad preached alongside of Dr. King during the freedom movement, and so it, it isn't just like this. Uh, these are big name people that, that have, you know, we, we read about in books, but these are like, this is people, you, that's your family. Like you grew up around this being your, your childhood, right? Well, I was born after Dr. King was assassinated, but uh, my parents met in the movie. Yeah. My mother was the office manager for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That was the organization that Dr. King set up uh, in the South. Mm-hmm. My father was a graduate of Morehouse College and was a part of what was called the student sit-in movement, which the, 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 the name that they came up with was the, the Movement for Human Rights, and they desegregated Atlanta. Uh, so the, the desegregation of Atlanta was, he was a part of that group. 
He then later joined SCLC as an organizer and uh, as a lieutenant, and he met my mother. And when hmm. they got married, it was Dr. King who performed the nuptials. And I actually have a picture sitting over here from a retreat that has the entire brain trust of the civil rights movement. And they threw a party for my parents in 66, which was their engagement party. And you have Coretta Scott King, Dr. King, you have Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth, Andrew Young, Hosea Williams. I mean, it just goes on and on and on of just about everyone that you would think of who was a part of the movement. They were there for a retreat and they were celebrating with my parents. Wow. And so this is, this is a, an amazing story for, as Dr. King would advocate, this is a fight for the soul of America. And this is the fight for the soul of America. But it's also, this is people that your parents rub shoulders with. And so what I'd like to do is kind of jump down, not just to your generation, but to your kids. And so the, the story, which I think is where we get the title of the book, uh, comes from when your daughter, Michaela, is that right? Is that her name? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think she's maybe six years old at the time. And you were a new pastor at the church where uh, the Reverend Wright had just received um, some not very positive feedback from people like Sean Hannity uh, as Obama was running for office. And there was a threat that came towards church, you, family, that uh, I, I can't imagine what that would be like as a father of three daughters. If I had a daughter who was six years old at the time, uh, that's that would be terrifying to me. And so you, you, you get startled in the middle of the night, you hear a sound uh, going upstairs, your daughter's, daughter's room is upstairs, and you grab a baseball bat in your hand, which I think most parents would do something like that, and you get upstairs, and what do you see in this moment of great chaos and stress your daughter doing? So the, the, the challenge of, of, of this story is that, as you already stated, Senator Obama is, is running uh, for, for president and becomes president. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, we started getting some really horrific letters uh, from people. Uh, I was actually, actually uh, wor working out at Bally's. I think it's been bought out by LA Fitness. I was warming down. Okay. And someone mm -hmm. taps me on the shoulder. And says, is that your church up there? And I look up on the screen. Sean Hannity is just going off about the church. And I'm like, oh, I got to go. And that began a media gauntlet for us. Forty outlets showed up every single Sunday trying to get a quote from someone. And then the death threat started. We started getting letters. We started getting emails. Uh, we had to turn things over to the FBI. And we had to get bomb-sniffing dogs wow. to show up to every single service. And then I had to get... Uh, personal security because I was getting death threats and Dr. Wright did, the church did. How, and yes. How, how old were you at the time? Cause you, you just started being the pastor there, correct? Yeah, I was 30. I was 37 at the time. I was okay. 37 at the time. All right. And okay, so you're getting death threats. Yeah, yeah. We're getting, we're getting, we're getting death threats at, at that time. And so one evening my wife, heard something i heard something she's like baby you need to go check that out and that's that's what husbands do <laughs> so uh, yeah. i grabbed my rod yes, and my staff that comforts me that was being my that <laughs> louisville slugger so i'm looking around and i yes sir know, and i'm thinking yes, sir. is this the moment where i'm going to have to defend my my family because of this horrific rhetoric 
again, of people who had no um, connection to our church, didn't know anything about the ministry, never been to the south side of Chicago, didn't know anything about black people, the whole nine, that some crazed person was going to break into my house uh, and try to harm my family. Hear the noise again? Go into my daughter's room. And as you said, I come in there, and there's my daughter in the middle of the room, and she's dancing. And she's saying, look, Daddy, I'm dancing. And, of course, it's 3 a.m., so I get that fatherly tone. And say, oh, baby, you need to go to bed right now. And she kept saying, look, daddy, I'm dancing. Uh-huh. And that's when the spirit just rested on me and said, mm-hmm. stop, look at your daughter. Your daughter is dancing mm-hmm. in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but it's not in her. And at that moment, I mm-hmm. ran down mm-hmm. to my study, scrapped my sermon because it was, it was, it was Sunday morning. And I just wrote yeah. until the sun came up stepped into the pulpit, and I mm-hmm. said that we're called to dance in the darkness. We dance with joy, with love, with justice, with, to transform this yet-to-be United States of America. We must learn how to dance. And as Scripture says, return your morning into dancing. When we are dancing in the darkness, yeah. it's not that the sun has left us. It just means that the earth has turned. And if we keep dancing, as Scripture says, joy will come in the morning. Hmm. If someone was trying to figure out what joy looked like for you in that moment, obviously that picture of your daughter dancing is a, a great image for what like, I, I would want to ascribe to. In in times of grief, uh, not exactly like that by any means, but I've seen joy in my daughters, which kind of struck a chord and said, hey, wake up to the, what the Spirit is trying to do inside of your heart. Um, how, how did you personally, obviously your daughter was an image of it, but how did you experience joy in that darkness? Because that seems like a, a very joyless season watching a child completely oblivious to all that was operating externally to find that internal Mm -hmm. joy and she was just practicing for her ballet lessons she's like i got a job to do Mm -hmm. i got i gotta i gotta get my steps right um this is this is my role and my responsibility i'm like she knows her role she knows her responsibility Mm -hmm. She's not afraid of the darkness. There's something, as, as my father told me years ago, um, turn out the lights. The same thing that's in the light is in the dark, which you're scared of. Um, it's all the same. Hmm. And she had hmm. embraced that idea. You know, she gets out of her bed. So it becomes incumbent upon us internally, individually, and as a society yeah. that we have to reclaim the dance in the Ethiopian Orthodox tradition. They say it this way. They say that um, God comes into the world to teach humanity how to dance. Humanity says, we don't want to learn your steps. And therefore, this idea of sin comes into the world. But then Jesus comes back and said, hey, I really want to teach y'all how to dance. And we choose to dance with Jesus. And the beautiful thing in the Ethiopian tradition, because they're an embodiment tradition, they say, if you dance the dance steps with Jesus, the world will be beautified. Even, and people will inquire, how'd you learn the dance? But even if they don't ask you about the dance, they're still going to be blessed by the dance that you're dancing. So they say, keep dancing, keep doing the work. And even people who don't know the steps will be blessed by your work. Hmm. That's beautiful. I love that picture of what sin is. So you have this uh, picture at the end of, of the book of Dancing in the Darkness, which is 
like I'm sure the sermon was beautiful. Uh, it, one of those fresh off the altar sermons, you know, it, it just, it showed up, you're ready to go. You're preaching it. Your daughter inspired this. It's a message about joy and darkness. Now, the beginning of the book, you include something that you wrote in 2016 for your son. And in 2016, uh, there was um, a tragic loss um, that, uh, forgive, no, no disrespect, I forget which um, killing it was. Uh, but, excuse me? Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, after, after his death, you write this letter and it's for your teenage son. And the response to that letter is that there was questions about hope or maybe the, the lack of hope. And your message is not uh, the only one that has come across where people go, where's the hope in this? Um, as you're describing and lamenting what's around. And so I think of these two stories, how do they, I mean, they're both stories that actually come with your own children and your experience. What do you think the relationship of uh, a letter that, that feels to some like it doesn't have hope and then a message of your daughters having joy and dancing in the darkness? Mm. Interesting. You know, the response by the letter for those who were, were, were in our community was like, hey, I get it. I understand it. Thank you very much. I have to have that conversation with my son about what it means to be a person of African descent and that your skin can be weaponized by people who operate with a particular imagination and mm-hmm. telling my son there's nothing wrong with you. There is something wrong with other people who will try to frame you in a particular way uh, and want yesterday to always be today and tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. you have all the tools to be successful. And some outside of our community are like, wait a minute, where's the hope? I'm like, the hope was in the fact a father sat down with his son and told him the truth. There's always hope in truth telling. And then reminding him of his great power that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. We have to be truth tellers. And there is a, a fear uh, that somehow when we tell the truth, we're being unpatriotic or we're stuck in the past. But the mm-hmm. only way, for example, put it this way, you don't want to be in a marriage with somebody who doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> No, so, no, you don't. So this, no. this, this democracy is a marriage. And when we tell the truth, it allows us to make our blues gospel. And that's what, what, what the black tradition teaches. People don't even realize that gospel music and, and, and blues is the same chords. You can't play gospel without the blues. So in other words, you can't know the gospel unless you know the blues of Calvary. You can't get mm-hmm. to Resurrection Sunday. And, and America wants to be resurrectionist without Calvary tears. And the yeah. black tradition says there's no way that you can play gospel without the blues. And mm-hmm. we embrace the blues not as existential crisis, but recognizing that there's ex- eschatological hope within that at the same time. All right, you're going to have to unpack that. Uh, <laughs> there's eschatological hope. Okay, yes. there's hope of what's to come, and it's not just an existential crisis. If we yes. were to read it just as an existential crisis, what would that be? And then compare that to what it is with eschatological hope. So if it was just an existential crisis, the, you know, the, the blues in that manner, then it would just be despair. The beauty of the black yeah. tradition is that 
We know how to face the blues, but not fall into despair. It would make sense for us to despair. And so then we write a song uh, that talks about our condition, but it doesn't end with that condition because we wrote the song to lift up the possibilities that we are living fervently in this moment and tomorrow. And then when you hear a song such as Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Mahalia Jackson, the chords are all blues. So you start off with your existential pain, but then you finish with Mahalia Jackson talking about Precious Lord, Take My Hand, My Eschatological Hope. That's the beauty mm-hmm. of having a blue note gospel. Yeah, that's good. I feel like I, I heard you somewhere, or maybe maybe it was in the book, where you talked about how uh, in America there have been some who wanted to bifurcate the blues and gospel music. <laughs> I'm hoping you're going to pick up what I'm saying here because I don't remember the rest of it, but there was some great idea. Do, do you got what I'm, where I'm going? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, the, jump the, in and help me out here. Yeah, so there has been a, a tradition to separate uh, the blues and the gospel. And sometimes that comes out in your prosperity uh, theology yeah. that, that talks about, you know, material wealth. That's really, it's, it's not Christianity. It's, it's capitalism in ecclesiastical garments, essentially. So oh, it, it kind of, of focuses, yeah. it just focuses on, hey, what do you have? Um, it focuses mm-hmm. on success, but we're to be focusing on faithfulness and authenticity and our connection yeah. to God. And when you separate blues and gospel, uh, when you separate disciplines from each other, uh, you mm-hmm. all of a sudden are unable to see the fullness of, of how God works. For example, you shouldn't separate math from music. You shouldn't separate mm-hmm. literature uh, from uh, theology. You shouldn't separate poetry uh, from art. You shouldn't separate preaching from from art it, it's all together and after the enlightenment the french revolution we start creating these um separations and sequestering traditions when in the ancient tradition all these things work together the only way that you could talk about philosophy you had to talk about the good life and in talking about the good life you had to talk about music and talking about music you had to talk about poetry and talking about poetry you also talked yeah. about meter and math and all these things were interrelated because all learning was interrelated yeah yeah uh, as bart would say uh, all truth is god's truth and i think yes. there's some something beautiful about bringing it all together you have uh, a line where you say i think i can find it here uh, something about how the... Okay, here's the quote. Uh, the African-American experience is perhaps a hundred years ahead of the rest of this country when it comes to living with and making the most of the blessings of diversity. Mm-hmm. W- what I hear in that quote, and, and maybe you can uh, unpack what you meant, is what you're just saying there is like trying to bring all that together, the, the diversity of maybe disciplines, the diversity of ideas, the diversity of how we comprehend what's around us. If I'm getting that correctly, what makes the African-American experience uh, perhaps a hundred years ahead of the rest of this country when it comes to living with and making the most of blessings of diversity? Because we've been forced to, uh, to experience and deal with diversity and create something new in the process. Uh, for example, if you want to talk about uh, the, the culinary tradition in the African-American uh, community, gumbo. Gumbo is bringing all these particular elements together and, and that supposedly shouldn't be going together. And, they, and you make this amazing, mm-hmm. amazing uh, dish. But the jazz tradition is the best example of teaching democracy and bringing things together that are not supposed to come together. So in hmm. New Orleans, you know, one of our great cities in this nation, you have on Sundays historically 
that enslaved Africans had that day off because it was primarily a Catholic parish in a place called the Congo Square. They heard the rhythms of indigenous people along with Spanish, along with French, along with German, uh, and along their own African pentatonic or polyrhythms. And jazz comes together. And jazz music uses instruments that you're not supposed to use to play mm -hmm. together. The saxophone is for the marching band. The piano is European classical. The trap drum set is supposed to do one, two time, not African polyrhythms. And when you play the bass, you're supposed to use a bow and not your fingers. But here comes jazz and says, everybody has the right what? To solo. In other words, you can bring mm -hmm. your unique cultural tradition to the table and bring something mm -hmm. beautiful. And you will never hear the saxophone tell the piano, you need to sound just like me. Or to have the piano say to the drum, you better sound just like me. No, everybody is given the right to express out of their unique diversity and shape and sound and bring something to the composition. That's democracy. And that's the kind of democracy that we need, a jazz democracy that allows people to express the, the uniqueness out of their own gift that God has placed in them. Mm-hmm. All right, I see why Jared likes your preaching so much. I, I, I'm, I'm, I get it. I get it now. All right, you're a preacher. You're doing good here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, you're doing great. Uh, okay, so you have this chapter about uh, redirecting rage because the experience of black people, specifically in America, uh, the diversity of experience includes oppression and awful, an awful history and an awful um, expression of what evil looks like in the world. And you have a quote from... Uh, Baldwin, which is a quote that I probably heard for the first time 20 years ago. Um, let me make sure I get it correct. To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. I've heard that quote uh, so many times. Very first time I heard it 20 years ago, I had a friend who was working on his dissertation, which was on black rage. And I was like, whoa, what, what are we talking about here? And it was a whole new experience for someone who's white like myself. And that quote has continued to pop up over and over again. Why do you think uh, Baldwin's line right there so accurately expresses how so many people feel that they include it over and over again in many different uh, books and, and songs and what have you not? It, the absurdity of of racism and the manner in which that it manifests itself among people of African descent is astonishingly absurd and ridiculous. I mean, it just, it blows your mind when you think through some of the things. The, for, let me give you a prime example. Just from my, just, this just my family story. Um, my grandfather, uh, Owned, well, my great-grandfather owned a 1,000 acres of land in Georgia. Those 1,000 acres were stolen, okay. and then he was forced to work on that land. His son, my grandfather, uh, became, a, became a sharecropper, but still had a dream that one day he would be able to own the land that he was on. So he refused to live on land that was owned by somebody white in Troop County, Georgia. And he had worked out a cooperative deal with another black family. When the um, patriarch of that family died, uh, a black man came by uh, the home and said, "Hey, you know, we want to we want to buy the you know buy the land." Come to find out, it had been put up by this major landowner uh, who was white in in Troop County to buy the land, and he'd been buying up land. Uh, of of African Americans who owned their land, and you know when they, they, they wait till they died. Mm -hmm. 
And so here is my grandfather who has become a sharecropper. It was intended that he would be a major landowner. And if a thousand acres, if in fact my family had a thousand acres and kept that, they would have been one of the wealthier families in western Georgia, better known as Troop County, Georgia, near the near the Alabama border. And he attempted to vote in 1946, my grandfather, sharecropper. Uh, his wife had died because of a medical apartheid, medical apartheid, meaning that they would not treat her. So she died. So that was the only reason that she died, not because, you know, she's just sick. But they said, no, we're not going to treat her because of who she is, because she is she's black. And and so he loses his wife, refuses to get remarried because he says, there's no woman who loved me like this. I will raise my five children on my own on a sharecropper's salary. And in 1946, he decides that he's going to vote because uh, there is a, a gentleman, and I'm not making this up at all, uh, who is running for governor of Georgia. And he says he wants to make Georgia great again by ensuring that no, quote, Negro, he didn't use that word Negro, uh, would vote ever again, have an opportunity to ever vote in this state. Uh, because there were still loopholes where people could still vote. So my grandfather decided to vote. And he walks to the first polling place and they say to him, uh, you know what, you're in the wrong spot. And it took, that was about six miles to get there walking. He's in a suit. And then he walks another, probably another six miles to the next polling place. When he gets there, they say, oh, you boy, you at the wrong place. You got to go down to the Rosemont School. He walks another eight miles to the Rosemont School. He gets to the door. There's someone standing in the door. Soon as he gets there, they slam the door and said, if you'd been here five minutes earlier, boy, you would have been able to vote. He walks back home. He talks to uh, my father and his siblings, and they were excited. Did you vote, Papa? And he's like, no, but if you ever get a chance that you, I hope that you'll vote. And he, he, he's, he dies before he has the opportunity to vote again. Now, that's a sad story, but it's also a story of incredible resilience because he was a black man in Georgia walk, walking, which many people don't realize how dangerous that is if someone were to catch you and you were attempting to vote. Then he inspires my father to be a part of the civil rights movement because he says, I'm holding up the legacy of my dad. He didn't have the chance to vote. Yeah. Now, the person he was trying to vote against and here's where the beautiful thing is. Senator Raphael Warnock now has his seat. <laughs> so so, so uh, he was voting against the governor, and that governor's son eventually became a senator. And now Reverend Warnock from Ebenezer Baptist Church is holding the seat of the person who attempted to deny the right of people to vote, and specifically their family denied my family's right to vote. So I find it serendipitous and sacred synchronicity in all of these challenging stories, but they're stories of power and resilience. Yeah. Wow. That's a really beautiful story. Uh, wow. There's there, uh, there's a movie that came out uh, on Netflix recently and it stars uh, Eddie Murphy and uh, – I forget her name. She was on Seinfeld and Jonah Hill's in it. I forget the rest of the cast, but it's uh, it's basically like a look who's coming to dinner kind of that sort of story. 
are you familiar with it? You know what I'm talking I'm about? I've seen the trailer. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I, I know guess who's coming to dinner. I'm, I'm actually a cinephile. I really love yeah, movies. You, well, I know. And I, also, I know you uh, love comic books as well. And so maybe we'll get to that. Um, but I, so I, I watch this movie and, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, you know, there's a lot of funny stuff. But the, the, the white mom who's kind of the mirror opposite of Eddie Murphy, uh, they're both kind of seen as parents are being hard on the other person who's you know trying to marry their their child and the white mom goes so far to use the black daughter-in-law as a way to represent like how liberal she is or how progressive or how forward-thinking she is and she's obviously over the top and it's ridiculous and no one that I could imagine that I know would ever do that but in the over-the-top humor I find myself indicted because I see what she's doing and I know how she could hear a story like you just described and try to associate herself with that and somehow work her way in as like she's the good guy in the story. And I found myself deeply uh, convicted of like it's a it's a ridiculous character that no one's that person in my mind, but everyone is that person in their mind. And so as a white person hearing stories like this and hearing this is what it's like to be, you know, Baldwin's quote, this is why there's rage. This is why black rage is a real thing. Um, how, how do you hear a, a white person's ability to be a good friend, a good neighbor, to lovingly support this story without dehumanizing you and your story and using it as just a way for me to prop myself up and feel good about myself? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does. It does. I think it's important that we hold each other's stories in our heart, hold them as, as sacred and learn from them because mm-hmm. the beauty of where the universality of the story comes when you are particular, uh, in your story. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm a lover of Ernest uh, Hemingway. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. I, I love, you know, some of the great literature, especially Southern, Southern writers. When you're particular about your story, I'm trying to be universal first, but you're particular. This happened in my family. This is my story. You end up becoming universal by focusing on the particular. Because though the pathway was not the same, but yet the feeling and the pain and the challenge, and that's what great art and storytelling does. Jesus was incredibly particular. He's talking to the Palestinian community that he's from. But it's universal. You know, not everybody had experienced Rome the way that he experienced it, but it's universal. And so it's important that we hold these stories as sacred and be willing to say this is, you know, Jonathan O's story. This is Jared's story. This this is this is your story. And we hold it as sacred and as something beautiful in in your tradition, in the process that we learn something that uh, elevates us all. Yeah, I like the idea of elevating uh, each other as we tell these particular stories because the particularities is how it's universal because we're all we all have a shared humanity one way or the other. That's we have something in common, and I like the idea of being able to elevate. And you you mentioned uh, in the section talking about part of my dust, uh, which is a reference to Ash Wednesday. You know, from dust you came to dust you shall return, uh, which is fitting because you know that's just right around the corner, Ash Wednesday. But you you reference a tribe, which I'm not going to try to pronounce the name because I'm going to butcher it. Mm-hmm. But you talk about after they have transgressed and done something wrong, there is a circle in which what they do is not like tell you all you did wrong, but it's something else. Could you could you describe a little bit of what that process yeah. is? Yeah, the the, the Southern African uh, community, the Bembe people, uh, they have this wonderful restorative justice tradition. 
And when a young person does something that transgresses the, the laws, the ethics, whatever it may be, they put a circle, they create this circle and put this young person in the middle of the circle. And the elders, the parents, the youth, the village comes together and instead of indicting, look what you did wrong, they start talking about the person's potential. I said, you know, you are a gifted young man, and let me tell you, I've watched you from the day that you were born. And, I, and they would just go on and on, and they do it for hours and sometimes days until the young person breaks down. They break down usually in utter tears because they want to be restored and live up to their potential versus being shamed to the point where they develop a sense of hate and insecurity for their own community. It's a beautiful tradition that you know, many families have done and things of that nature. But I just believe that in our democracy, if we could gain that sense of restoration and redemption over retribution, you know, yeah. if our schools operated that way, where we yeah. wanted to restore people and wanted them to live out their highest values and flourish the way that God causes them to flourish, if we could just for yeah. a moment take a cue from Jesus who wants us to flourish, we would see a transformative act take place in our nation. Yeah. As someone who's advocating, uh, like Dr. King would say, not just for black advancement, but for the soul of America, if that was at the heart of the freedom fight, as, as I understand what he was trying to articulate, um, we're trying to push this better picture of, of what it could be. And you, you make this interesting caveat at the very beginning of the book where you put um, the word America uh, in italics. I, I'd like for you to maybe unpack just for a second what that move was and what you're, what you're trying to articulate. Well, it's trying to say that uh, the idea of America is, uh, is, is myth, is tragedy, is, is truth, and ultimately something that is still in the womb yet to be born. And, and for some, people want America to be one way. Well, coming to Southside, America is a little bit different uh, in terms of what people desire. Yeah. If I go to Appalachia, it's a little bit different. If I'm on a reservation, it's a little bit different. Um, if I'm at the border, it's a little bit different. And so these conceptions of America, forcing everyone to say there must be one conception, I say that it's, it's myth and legend and truth. It's, it's lies and possibilities. It's all of the above. Instead of competing, we should accept the totality, just like a human being. Uh, they're not one or the other. I love uh, always saying that as human beings, everybody's got a get, has horns and halos, you know, it just depends on which day you catch somebody. Um, yes, and, and America is the same way. It is, it is all yeah. of the above. And, and I think that that's our pathway to transformation is when we are honest about all, all, all of this and not just part of this. Yeah. I think C.S. Lewis is the one who said that uh, humanity is a mixture of dust and divinity. Mm-hmm. And so you got some yes. of the angel dust, and then you also have some of the, the dirt from the ground, and that's how humanity was formed. That's a, 
obviously reference back to Genesis creation stories. But uh, so, yeah, there's this mixture of what we all are. But the idea is when we learn how to dance in the dark, that we're doing something to fight against the darkness. And you you open the book with this beautiful story by uh, Reverend Kyle uh, about someone uh, lighting lamps. Can, can I get you to tell that story? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Reverend Billy Kyle was part of the freedom movement. He was also one of the few people who's no longer living uh, that was present at the assassination of Dr. King. And whenever he would preach, you know, as he got older, he always told the same story. And the reason being is because he says this hasn't yet to be realized. He says, I'm old and I get to to say the same stuff over and over again. Oh, that's a great line. Yeah. It's yet to be realized. That's why I'm telling the stories again. That's good. That's perfect. (laughs) That's why I keep telling it. So Billy Kyle tells the story of, of a young man who's staring out a window and he sees a person lighting lamps and his father comes into the room and says, son, you need to go to bed. And he's like, daddy, please come with, you need to see this. He's like, what? He said, there's a man out here. He's punching holes in the darkness. And Billy Kyles goes on to talk about, he says, that's our responsibility. He would close every, no matter what message it was, no matter who he's talking to, he says, your job. And he knows the wonderful kind of rough voice, your job is to punch holes in the darkness. Let those stars shine in the darkness and give someone light to freedom, light for joy, light for love. I mean, he, he, I mean, he would just go in from there, but it's a beautiful image of punching yeah. holes in the darkness of the person lighting a lamp at the turn of the century. And mm. for the little boy, it looks like he was punching holes in the darkness. Ah, that's so good. That's a, such a beautiful picture of, uh, of what the work of justice of, of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom hopefully is, is there's just bringing a little hole in the darkness. Uh, okay. Let me get you out here on something lighter. I know you're a comic book guy. Uh, <laughs> let's do some questions here. Uh, yeah. Marvel or DC? Uh, Marvel. Okay, that's that's the right answer. Um, that is the right answer. Uh, um, give me your three favorite uh, Marvel characters. Now, I know you mentioned in the book you're a Batman fan. I know uh, Daredevil, yeah, like Luke Cage. Some of those Luke names are mentioned, but I Without a doubt. Okay, give me yeah. top three, though. This is it. Top three, it would be, it's Luke Cage, Black Panther, and Bishop from the X-Men. Bishop from the X-Men. Okay. Yeah, Bishop is the character. Uh, in, well, I see. I read the comic book. So Bishop is actually from the future. He ends up leading the X Men for for a minute. So he's this guy. He's able to absorb energy and redirect energy, uh, and mm-hmm. he comes from the future to the past because he's trying to save the future by teaching them in the past what the future may become. Nice. That's pretty good. You you said that you like characters that show restraint. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. No one wants a character who's just like, "Hey, I can destroy everyone, so let me just destroy you right now." Like, well, that, that's no what most for- characters do. You know, they're they're all of them show a degree of restraint. You know, Bat. I mean, Batman mm-hmm. obviously doesn't use his guns. Superman restrains all the time. I mean, if you read the comic book, he he never uses his full power ever, mm-hmm. ever mm-hmm. because he's always afraid of what will happen, and he mm-hmm. will not kill anyone. I mean, that's that's he has this particular kind of ethic. Um, Charles Xavier, Professor X. He refuses to use the full power that he has all mm-hmm. the time. This is too strong. You know, he's afraid that mm-hmm. he will destroy someone's mind in the, in the process. Scott Summers, uh, who's Cyclops, you know, has the, uh, the beams that come out of his eye. He will not use yeah. his full power. Uh, and Jesus on the cross could have gotten down, but does not use his full power. 
uh, look at you. Look so. at you. That was a good move right there. That's good. Okay, favorite Marvel movie then. Favorite Marvel movie? Um, actually, TV show. I like. I'm sorry, Luke Cage show because they had the best really? soundtrack. Because it was the uh, the producer uh, Ali uh, Shahid Muhammad who was a part of Tribe Called Quest. Did oh really? The oh yeah, yeah. The music is. I have the soundtrack. I mean, just it's not just the soundtrack; it's the compositions. Like yeah. you know, here's Luke discovered it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I, I love what they did with it because it was so pared down, without all the special effects and whatnot. It was just a guy in the community. He just wants to see the community look, be better. Okay, well, I think that's a, a a great advertisement. If you haven't seen Luke Cage, I mean, it's on <laughs> it's on Disney Plus. Like it's it's been out for a few years. Yeah. Uh, and if you finished that one already, and you're like, hey, I need to read a book. Uh, your new book, Dancing in the Darkness. Uh, when is it? Does it come out? Uh, is it next month? Is it March that then it comes out? No, it's already out. It's out now. It oh, it is. Okay, it is well then out. I'll just bump this to the front of the queue then. January third, yeah, it came out on January. Oh goodness! 3rd. All right, doing really well as a matter of fact. Uh, we're really, really very pleased. It's uh, available in Target, Wal Walmart, Barnes and Nobles. It's available everywhere. It's doing pretty well. Nice. Well, except for when you have podcast hosts who don't remember when the book came out. Um, but I w <laughs> I'll put this out then as soon as I can. But hey, uh, congratulations on the book. And uh, Dr. Moss, thank you so much for the time. It was my pleasure.